0: And then briefly turn to the calling of the bride, who owes so much to this great and wonderful bridegroom of hers, who has bought her with a price. Psalm 45, my heart is indicting a good matter, I speak of the things which I have made touching the king, my tongue is the pin of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men, grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible, or if you will, awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be then, shall be there with a gift, even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within, her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought, they shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers, or if you will, in the place of thy fathers, shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. This is a wonderful text with which to mark the wonderful event of Christ's Ascension into heaven, of which ascension this text is prophetic. So it happens that about two months ago, on the day that Reformed churches mark as Ascension Day, I preached this text and sermon in our Kalamazoo congregation as an appropriate passage. But it is a wonderful and appropriate passage for any given Lord's Day during the year you want to mention, as it has everything to do with the remarkable majesty and glory and beauty and attractiveness of the ascended Lord Jesus. Notice it speaks of him riding forth triumphantly. Ride forth triumphantly, says the psalm, with thy sword upon thy thigh. Ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. For 2,000 years, beloved, this Bridegroom of ours in his glory has been riding through history and the nations of the earth with his sword upon his thigh, conquering and to conquer as upon a great white steed. I lift that figure from Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of the opening of the seven-sealed book, in other words, the opening by the Lamb, the Lion of Judah's tribe who had ascended up on high. Worthy is the Lamb. No man was found who could open the book and they gave it to, of course, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah's tribe who was Christ and he had the right and the power to begin to open the seals of New Testament history. And then you would have chapter 6. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. This is the first seal that begins, if you will, the New Testament history. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder and I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. In the passage we also have the arrows, don't we? The arrows that go forth from this one. He had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. He has been writing throughout the whole New Testament history, beloved, by the gospel and the spirit, conquering and to conquer. And that doesn't refer simply to the conquering of his enemies and casting them down into defeat and destruction, but it also has to do with the conquering of those whom he loved, for whom he gave his life, to conquer them by his love, to transform hearts, and then to conquer, if you will, our affections by his goodness and his majesty, his beauty, if you will, And by his promises. And we are overcome by his love and the power of his love, and we have been conquered and confess him as our rightful Lord and King. Like a certain Saul of Tarsus, how long ago? Who went from Saul, the enemy, to Paul, the one who loved his Lord, confessed his Lord and could not say enough glory, glorious things about the grace and mercy of this Lord Jesus who had saved his soul and made him an heir to everlasting life and the right to the glory of the king's palace as well. Well, we want to focus on the glory of this majestic one. This evening we will Turn to the matter of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as prophesied of in Joel chapter 2. And when you think about it, beloved, this great Christ Jesus, this promised Messiah who ascended up on high, ascended exactly in large measure that he might pour out his Holy Spirit upon his beloved church and use that Spirit to gather his church. The disciples, you know, thought they needed his bodily presence The great need, beloved, of the New Testament church is not for Christ's bodily presence sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. The great need of the church of the ascended Christ Jesus is for his life. His Holy Spirit who brings his life and his mind and his understanding. It's with that in mind that Christ Jesus ascended up on high to give us the eyes to see who he is and then to confess him as well. So we turn to this chapter under the theme homage to the royal bridegroom. The attractiveness of the victorious bridegroom, and we're going to focus on that three-fourths to four-firsts four fifths of the sermon will be on that first point with various subpoints as you will see and then briefly the calling of the redeemed and chosen bride as well a wedding text a text commissioned by a king for the royal wedding of his son quite possibly and likely a psalm commissioned by david not written by david that's apparent from the heading of the psalm which headings usually can are are trustworthy as it says to the chief musician upon sheshanim for the sons of korah mescal a song of love so it was given to this chief musician who was to compose a psalm for the wedding of the king's son. In other words, the wedding of the crown prince. And I said quite likely this was commissioned by, by David. He didn't compose it, but commissioned probably for his son Solomon and Solomon's first bride. And Solomon, of course, from a certain point of view, would be a proper foreshadowing of Christ Jesus, the greater coming son of David, because Solomon also was one of God's own, a God-fearing man, for all of his his weakness, but had the splendor of his mind, of his wisdom, and his architectural build, uh, his architectural ability to really build up. Jerusalem and the temple itself, which temple, as you know, itself would be a foreshadowing of the coming of the greater David, Christ Jesus, as the Son of God, the temple of the living God. But also, Solomon, in some ways, a foreshadowing of Christ from point of view of contrast. How many wives did Solomon have? Children here could tell you how many wives this Solomon had. Three hundred and then concubines besides contrast to that Solomon, beloved, is the greater son of David who is a one bride man. Son of man, I should say. A one bride son of man. The church which he loveth well and to whom he would be and was faithful even unto death. So, psalm to be composed and there's that that word, shoshanim, and That means lily, interesting. That was probably the name of the tune. And I'm reminded of the Song of Solomon. He is the lily of the valley and the bright and morning star, the faithful, the fairest of 10,000 for my soul, I believe the song goes. But composed then by this sweet singing poet psalmist with a tune to be played upon a harp perhaps, the tune, of course, has passed on, but not the words of the psalm, the song that he composed. And as he writes, when he's commissioned to write this wedding song for the royal wedding, his heart indicts a good matter. An honor has been laid upon me that fills me with an excitement and enthusiasm that I should be selected to write a Song a psalm for that wonderful occasion. Of course, a royal wedding is always a tremendous occasion for a for a kingdom that becomes the focal point of the of the nation itself. This upcoming wedding and the lavishness of the banquet and proceedings and and so on. So with this this psalmist, but also because of the importance of the wedding of a crown prince to a young maiden, because what would come from that crown prince and his maiden was the hope of the future of the kingdom that from this union would come royal seed and especially one to carry on for the king that when he died he would have a proper successor because if he did not, the nation knew the kingdom was going to face issues. Who was going to rule now without the proper successor from the loins of the king, his brothers, generals, there could well be civil war and strife and all kinds of chaos and turmoil in the kingdom. And if from the union came the crown prince, there would be a rejoicing. With that in mind, you see, they marry, or even for the sake of the stability and the security of the kingdom in years ahead. So, and I might add this, quite possible, likely, that the Psalm knew Psalmist knew the Crown Prince and loved that Crown Prince, a man of personality and not of an arrogancy, but knew the men of his men of his father 's court and had a personality that would engage in conversations and for whom they had a right hope. So this honor has been bestowed upon him, and he is thrilled, and his part is inditing a good matter, and he reflects upon it. He prays concerning it, and the Holy Spirit comes and plays upon the heartstrings of his heart. And it says, "My tongue is the pen of a ready writer." He's moved, you see. He's inspired, and it's quite possible that as he sits there, he begins to sing, and he sings this psalm, and then he composes that. He he writes down what the Spirit has moved him to sing, and we have this, of course, then composed here in Psalm 45. But whatever might have been the earthly occasion for this psalm, the Holy Spirit who has inspired and moved the psalmist to write the words has a deeper occasion in mind, does he not? Not simply what we would call the occasion of an earthly wedding, however glorious that earthly wedding might be, of a crown prince and his bride-to-be, and the lavishness of the banquet and of the ceremony and so on, the Holy Spirit has in mind that greater Son of David who is coming, who is described not only as the Son of David, but is described in the psalm even as thy throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of thy kingdom is the right scepter. The Holy Spirit has in mind the Son of God coming flesh. Whether the psalmist understood that properly or not is not the question. He may not have even understood completely what he was writing here. What's striking is if you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and the writer of the book of Hebrews is proving to the Jews and children of the Jews who are being criticized for becoming Christians, why do you follow this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth they preach? They even claim him to be the son of God. How can he be the son of God? And the, and the writer of Hebrews says, remind your parents who are opposed to your Christianity that the Psalms they confess prophesy of the Messiah being the Son of God? Have they not read, do they not remember what we call Psalm 45? He even calls him, O God, thy scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. But be that as it may, that's the occasion. It's a foreshadowing, this psalm is a foreshadowing and an anticipation of the coming of the promised Messiah, that greater Son of David, who would take unto himself a bride, which we know, of course, as the church, chosen unto everlasting life. And this psalm is set up in such a way that it comes under the uh, ex- uh, description of marriage proceedings in that day. You are somewhat per uh, familiar, I think, with the marriage proceedings of that day. If you know something of the parable of the of the virgins, ten wise and ten foolish, same proceedings then that a bride would prepare herself with her her maids, in that parable, of course, there are seven, five who have, are prepared with oil in their lamps, and there are five who not who are not. They're foolish, and by the time they get to the banquet hall, the doors have been shut and they are locked out in their foolishness. But the proceeding was that a bridegroom would have his groomsmen and he would prepare himself for the banquet and for the ceremony and then he would take his groomsmen and they would go through the streets of the city whether on foot or on horseback as here seems to be described and gather the bride who had prepared herself with her handmaids, and then proceed through the streets of the city to the banquet hall in this instance that banquet hall was nothing less than some part of the palace of The king where the guests were awaiting to celebrate and banquet with them and then to observe the ceremony and the two would be bound together of course by their vows one to another that's the perspective that the psalmist is moved to take the coming of the bridegroom with his groomsmen to collect shall i say or gather his bride and then to escort her to the banquet hall in preparation for the for the marriage, the ceremony, the vows, and then what would follow. Now, it's under, understand that he goes forth, and that this psalm revolves about the bridegroom. This is a wedding ceremony that's going to revolve about the bridegroom not the bride however beautiful might be her gown and however well prepared she might be and her hair braided and all the rest maybe a little different from our own ceremonies where it does seem whether the song is appropriate or not here comes the bride what about the groom well he's there hopefully for more than just a prop, important for the ceremony as well. And the bride here prepares herself, not with a view to impress her friends or the audience who have come with the beauty of her gown and so on, but she has prepared herself to please the bridegroom, the one who is going to marry her, to whom she is betrothed, and to whom she is going to give her and this is altogether proper of course when you consider who the bridegroom is when all is said and done this is not a bridegroom who has a husband is going to take advantage of her because she wants to please him you want to please me I'll take advantage of that but this is a bridegroom who loves her and is going to honor her and elevate her and say this is my queen and you will treat her as my queen because if you mistreat her I take it personally and you mistreat me do you understand that? She's mine. I love her. And I will love her even unto death. Let no one besmirch the name and beauty of my bride. She knows she is being wedded to such a groom, if you will. And when it comes to who this bridegroom really is, because that wasn't Solomon, that bride ended up being one of how many? Yeah. When you're married to the true bridegroom of this psalm psalmist, of this psalm I should say, then it's one who will honor her and love her as his own bride. But when you consider beloved, there wouldn't even have been a wedding apart from the faithfulness of this bridegroom because the bride whom he takes to himself has not been faithful to him not in reality. This is not a bride whom we can call a virgin if you will but whom this great bridegroom takes to himself is one who has been pledged to him and then has fallen into sin and not been faithful to him and he has right by law beloved to do what Joseph was thinking of doing with the virgin Mary when he thought she had cheated on him to put her away I might be betrothed to you and engaged but when I see that you have cheated on me, I'm putting you away and it is all over. It's... Joseph didn't have the right because the angel tells him, no, she's been faithful, Joseph. What is worked in her womb is the one promised by Psalm 45, stating that in his own way, of course. But Christ had the perfect right to put away his church, to put us away, to Divorce us and to be done with us, free from all of his promises, if you will, because he takes to him one who has committed the sin of fornication. It's interesting, striking, that in the opening gospel words, Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy of the son of David, the son of Abraham, the book of the generation, of the begetting of Christ Jesus, the one spoken of in Psalm 45. And it goes down the list of his ancestors, and then it gets down to a Solomon, not Solomon, a Solomon, who begat Boaz of Rahab. And Rahab was who? And what? She was a harlot. She was from the nations, but a harlot. And then it mentions Boaz, though there may be a couple generations that have been omitted between Rahab and Boaz and Boaz but then Obed of Ruth who you say was a virtuous woman yeah but she also had been an idolater and she had to be brought in by the wonder of a grace that transformed and forgave great transgressions but think of Rahab that's the ancestry of this Christ Jesus And she is the proper representation, beloved, of the church that he loveth well. But he did not put her, he did not put us away. He was faithful unto her. Even if it means I have to die to redeem this bride and renew her and quicken her in love and faithfulness to me again. And that's, of course, what he has done. Notice, it says concerning this bridegroom of Psalm 45, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness, or as the Psalter we sang, ride, ride triumphantly forth, with thy sword girded upon thy thigh, O most mighty one. He is a warrior king, is he not? And he goes forth conquering and to Conquer. When this royal bridegroom rides forth to conquer and to conquer, beloved, he does not ride forth to begin his victories. When he goes to collect his bride, he doesn't go to begin his victories. He goes to his bride having already accomplished some singular victories. He rides forth, beloved, as the one who has already dealt with death, inter-death, and conquered death. It's so striking, you know, that in the gospel record, as you find it in Acts, where the apostle Paul is preaching to some of the um, uh, representation of the nations, Acts chapter 13, Paul makes reference to this Jesus Who's written of in the second psalm. You know, you know the second psalm. Tied in with Psalter number three. Hark the herald angels sang. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then it says in verse 34 of Acts 13, and concerning this one, he raised him up from the dead. He has no more return to corruption. I will give thee the sure mercies of David. And then comes verse 35. Wherefore he saith Also in another psalm, that is, Psalm 16, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell to sleep, that he he died, and he was laid unto his fathers, and his body saw corruption. His body rotted away. But when this greater son of David, Christ Jesus, was put into the grave, the sepulcher His blood cells did not begin to decay. On Saturday, beloved, alarm bells were going off in the corridors of hell. Death hath no power over the body of this Jesus whom we have put to death. And it entered into the bowels of the grave. He was as Daniel in the lion's den and the great beasts of death dared not touch him, beloved. There was no decay, there was no rottenness. Already it was apparent he had the power over death, not death, the power over him. And the devils of hell are saying, perhaps we have taken into our own bowels death. Have we miscalculated? You better believe they miscalculated, beloved, because on the third day, early in the morning, he arose from the dead. He tore the bars away. He had a singular victory, didn't he, over death itself. The enemy now is his servant to do his will, to bring to himself the members of his bride one by one as he sees fit. This past week, body of a member of the congregation placed in the grave, awaiting what? The resurrection day. Why do we have that hope? Because of the victory already of this bridegroom over the grave and the power of death, giving hope to those Even as we come to the end of life, we are not, as those without hope, we are committed to a bridegroom who will take our soul into glory. Death itself will be his servant, and someday, my flesh, I shall see God. That conquering king, that glorious bridegroom, but that's not the only victory he has before he goes to gather his church in the New Testament age, beloved. There is also his victory in heaven following his ascension. Ten days after he ascended, he pours out his Holy Spirit. There's an interval of ten days. What happens during those ten days according to earth's hours? What happens in heaven? We're told in Revelation chapter 12 what happens in heaven when the ascended Lord Jesus suddenly appears in his glory because when he arises from the dead, he's not yet glorified. He has a new body and he can appear and disappear but he does not go into heaven as yet. He's in some intervening place awaiting the ascension day which happens 40 days after his resurrection. Then he ascends up on high and he vanishes from the sight of his disciples and he appears in the corridors of heaven itself and the great cry goes up, worthy is the Lamb. And then Christ Jesus ascends to God's right hand and what is his first task? Be found. In Revelation chapter 12 she brought forth a man child. This is the church, Christ Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God in his throne. That's the ascension. And the woman is taken into a wilderness and then there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any anymore in heaven. He was cast out. And then you hear a loud voice saying, verse 10, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, of our Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accused them before our God day and night. He cleanses heaven. Michael, he's the great captain. Michael is his general, if you will. And he goes against the forces of Satan who were allowed to appear into heaven to say, what is this adulterous Samson doing here? Who paid his sentence? Who served his sentence? What is this? murdering David who took the life of Uriah doing here. What is this drunk Noah doing here and on on this Rahab this harlot and so on? What are they doing here? Who serves it? Where is thy righteousness Lord God? And the bridegroom appears the great general with his sword upon his thigh and he sends forth the angels and they clear heaven from the accuser and all of his devils never to appear again. He's preparing you see a place for the gathering of his bride, member by member in the New Testament age, that then it will be perfect. Those who were in heaven were already perfect, but it was not perfect, not when the accusations were there. What are you doing here? What right do you have to be here? Where's the righteousness of God? It's all answered by the cross of Christ and his a resurrection, ascension, and then the house of many mansions he begins to build as a temporary abode for the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. But that's singular victory also. So he rides forth, having already had two singular victories over the two great enemies, death and the right to hold members of his bride and Satan himself with his devilish powers. And then, beloved, he goes forth in the New Testament age to begin to collect his bride, if you will, member by member. And in this bridegroom that church whom he gathers, rejoices. And why does the church whom he gathers, member by member, why do the members of that church, and why do we rejoice in him? Well, I can say because of his beauty and his majesty. Wherein is his beauty and his majesty? Well, beloved, his beauty and his majesty is not in what we might call his good looks. That can happen with a young lady, young man, has good looks, shape and form, and young lady would say, "Well, I'd like for him to ask me out on a a date because he has a certain status, perhaps because of his appearance. You think that's the answer, huh? A man's appearance, outward? I'll give you a man with outward appearance. Ever hear of Absalom? You talk about a good-looking young man, beloved. It was Absalom. He knew it too. He fancied himself. He checked himself off in the mirror, you know, the glass. Those wonderful locks of his weighed how many pounds? He had charm. He had personality. He stole the hearts of a kingdom from under the feet of his father. He was a good-looking young man. He was also a narcissist who was in love with himself. And if you were married to him, it was only to show off whom he perhaps could attract and in public he could be very charming now close the doors and find out who he is behind doors in private suddenly demeaning and belittling and abusive with with words and now you are simply one of others because I also cast my eye on others I want others also to look at me there's no faithfulness there looks or no looks beloved. that's not Christ Jesus he's not that son of David This Christ Jesus, this greater son of David, beloved, is the one who has this character, this wonderful, trustworthy character, and it's in some ways described by the psalm when it says, ride forth because of truth and meekness and righteousness. He's a bridegroom to whom truth means everything. That means, beloved, when he makes a vow, I love you, I will love you even unto death for better or for worse, he means it and he will keep his word. Even if it requires death of him. And it did, of course, and he was faithful unto death. That Christ Jesus of truth, genuine, you see. Take him at his word. He is trustworthy. He means what he says. And if he says, I love you, he means it. Christ Jesus the one of truth and the revelation of the heart of his father who so loved that he gave his only begotten son, not only sent him but gave him as a gift to bring many sons and daughters to himself. The seed of the woman you see along with the seed of the woman, that king of truth, that husband of truth. There's nothing private. He is who he says he is. And he's faithful to his word. And meekness, that's an interesting description, description of this Lord Jesus. Meek means, beloved, he's not haughty. He's not arrogant. He's not simply in love with himself. He's full of glory and he'll receive praise but he is in love with his bride. He has a self-giving love and he is willing to serve his bride. Is not this the one beloved who in the upper room got down on his knees and washed the feet of those who were members of his bride, his disciples? That's meekness. I will be of service though I have all authority and majesty and I will serve the well-being of my beloved people. Meekness, beloved. And we may say, evil things, but he returns good for evil and then works salvation and forgiveness and cleansing as well. That's the meekness of this great bridegroom whom his father gave to him as chosen and beloved. And then you could add to that character this matter of righteousness and that would require a whole sermon, difficult in some ways to describe without saying a whole lot but simply having to do primarily with the fact that he assesses others not according to status and wealth and so on because kings could do that they are unrighteous and if someone had status and wealth well that one can be a service to me in my ambitions who needs the poor who needs the naboths and so on and the And the widows and the orphans don't need need those. They do nothing for my kingdom. They're simply a drain on my supplies. So if something happens, I'm going to go with the wealthy and the status. They're going to always be absolved. But you can do what you want with with the poor and the average citizen of my kingdom. Not with this Christ. Righteousness has nothing to do with status. He's not a respecter of persons. They are mine. And I will stand for them. And then what he will do in his character as the righteous one is described in these other two characteristics of having grace poured from his lips. Grace is poured into thy lips. It really means gracious words are spoken by him. We need one to speak good words to us, beloved. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people in our distresses. And he knows how to speak those good words. There may be times of rebuke and reproof, but even that, words of love, the point is in the right direction because in those ways there is blessing and happiness and not in those ways grace is poured, from comes forth from his lips. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are gracious words, beloved. And words such as thy sins be forgiven thee. Go thy way and sin no more. But be assured, thy sins are forgiven thee. Gracious words, I love you yet. You have returned. I will receive you and wash away your sins and draw you to myself again. Grace is poured from his lips. And then you can add to that beloved, he is the mighty one. This warrior king who is the shepherd king as well The shepherd king is also the warrior king. There is the rod in his arm, hand. There's arrows in his bow. And the enemies of the church he knows full well. And he is there to defend his people from that enemy and those enemies, lest they steal their souls from him. And he will not allow, beloved, anyone to steal the souls of his bride, the members of his souls, from him. He's the defender and the preserver of his church. Sometimes may lose sight of that because the world and society and the wicked seem to loom so large and are so many and whereas his church it seems small and and almost powerless and yet beloved twenty centuries since his passing the church is still found the mighty empire of Rome where is she? dust beloved In the pages of history, you can read concerning the Roman Empire, but she, for all her might and power, is long gone and almost forgotten, just a footnote in history. But the church, that little church of his, representing his beloved bride, she, we still exist with our our witness and the truth of the gospel and carrying his precious name. He has defended his church, beloved, and the witness of his church. And even those who have died being persecuted as martyrs, beloved, you know that many of them died singing the Psalms because they said, going to glory. And even taking upon their lips the the, the words of, of Christ Jesus, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And by their testimony, some of the persecutors themselves have been turned to Christ, confess their sins like Saul of Tarsus and been saved. The power to defend and preserve his own unto death and through death to take them to glory of this one to whom we can entrust our soul, body and soul, the character beloved of this bridegroom of ours, the gracious words that he speaks to us to encourage and comfort and to continue us in our hope, and the power no man has ever yet plucked the soul of my beloved from my Father's hand. And I will be faithful to you even unto death. And so, beloved, the glory of this bridegroom of ours, whom the Father, the father of whom chose us to be numbered among such, and be given unto him, and to have faith, hope. To this great bridegroom, beloved, we have a calling. And what that calling is is marked out briefly in verse 10, to begin with, hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Before I briefly explain that, you could say, well, our calling is to pay homage to him. That's true. But let us understand, beloved, that that homage to the king is more than simply singing Psalter numbers and hymns and singing and praising and glorifying God and and, and joining the church choir. There have been many who have joined the church choir. And then when they left church, what, what were they up to? Was it service? Or was it immorality? Was it cheating in business? Was it dishonesty? Was it maltreatment of their own family. they were in the church choir. They sang the homage. They said the words. But did the life coincide with the words? So homage, beloved, but not just from the mouth. Homage from the service, says to the bride, to the church. And the homage from the service is incline thine ear and forget thine own people and thy father's house. And that true of marriage in many points from many points of view must be willing to leave father and mother and cleave to your wife leave father and mother and cleave to your husband as well and one's loyalty and one's uh, allegiance and so on and obligation is no longer to one's parents but now to the husband, to the head of the home So, leave thine own, forget thine own people and thy father's house. You belong now to another, to be of service to him as he in his own love will serve you and your well being as well. What does Christ Jesus say? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And you are mine first of all. It's interesting. When a young lady marries a young man, you may take on that young man's last name, Smith or DeWagner or whatever the name might be. But ultimately, of whatever one's last name might be as a wife and a bride, if you are a believer, your ultimate name is I am a Christian. And it comes down to a contest between the words of my husband and a word of my Lord Jesus. I will obey the words of my Lord Jesus and not submit to the words of my husband, which are going astray. My ultimate loyalty and my ultimate allegiance is to the one whose name I bear. I am a Christian, and to him him I I will live, and then according to his word I will walk. And that's the second part of the calling when it says in verse 11, he is thy Lord and worship him. That literally means in Bow the knee, submit to him. And when you submit to him, you submit to his word. Just simple, basic Christianity. Beloved, how do you know what his word is? Well, read this book. You'll find out what his word is. And I'll be governed by his word. His word will tell me how to live, how I am to treat others, how I am to respond to others, how I am to live in relationships to others. This will please the great bridegroom. And they are the words of wisdom. They are the words of life. They are the words of strength relationships. And they are the words in which I will experience spiritual blessedness. So the calling, forgetting the past. I, I like the words of, of the Psalter number that we sang, you know, 125, how it opens. O royal bride, give heed to my words attend. For Christ the King forsake the world and every former friend. A willingness to do that because of the one who has so loved me and whom I also love now as well. And having obeyed his word, beloved, one lives in hope. That too. Hope for the future. To give an answer to the hope that is within you. Why do you live the way you do? Because I have an eye to glory itself. That's my ultimate destination. Not anything that is on this world but I have in view a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Where is the person of my great bridegroom whose life and spirit lives within me now. A hope that never puts to shame. And that hope beloved is Described in a very descriptive way, you know, in Revelation chapter 21. Because here is the ultimate palace to which the bride, when every last one of us has been gathered, will be taken. Not to the temporary abode of the heavenlies that now is, but what's described in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven. Here's the ultimate palace, beloved. Here's the inheritance. A new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Now, listen to this, this description prepared as a bride, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the fellowship, the dwelling of God is with men, he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And now, congregation, listen to this. As you will put to rest the body of a beloved member. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor cry. Neither shall there be any more pain. Former things are passed away. The new Jerusalem, beloved, will you be there? Are you walking in such a way? Is that your hope? Beloved, haste the day when all of the saints shall be there. Sin no more, tears no more, The fellowship one with another, and we shall see with our own eyes, beloved, the loveliness of this great bridegroom who has done so much for us and by his power begun a new work in us. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word of hope. Thank thee for the one whom thou didst give for us, and to whom thou didst give us. As his life is in us, may we live unto him, and show whose we are, without shame, that his name and his grace might be glorified. Amen.